imagine, if you will, uh, be given a life sentence, a time that will end your life in a certain time period. So you think you're living your life really well and then suddenly you're delivered the news that actually your life is not going to go on and on as you intended, but actually it will be shortened. And so once you, you digest the shock of that, because there's always that shock, that first feeling, then comes that whole, often you see people do bucket lists, right? So we make a bucket list. We're trying to get as much into that time period that we now have uh, to live our best life, to get as much out of those last remaining uh, time period that we've been given. And it's often at this time then the things that we thought were important tend to fade away in light of this new perspective. So the things that you really value, the monetary things, the, the careers that you had, the uh, car that you wanted, the house or whatever it was, generally starts to fade away just because shh, as this new perspective takes place. I took a funeral last week, on, last Sunday actually, after church. I went and took a funeral for a friend's mother. Her name's Betty. And uh, it was a real, it was an amazing service, I'd have to say. I mean, I was real nervous because, you know, <laughs> I didn't know the um, people that well. But um, it was actually super amazing. And in the address, when I spoke to the friends and family who were gathered there, I spoke from Psalm 23, uh, which is a famous psalm that often is brought around times of death or pain. But in fact, it was actually just Betty's favourite psalm. As a, a woman growing her family, that was something she had really clung to and it spoke to her. And I think we often we only approach the end of our life that we realise what we don't lack or sometimes sadly what it is that we do lack. And it was amazing for Betty that actually she was um, really not lacking much. But what she didn't lack, she had an incredibly intact faith and she had a real intact family that supported her and loved her and brought her around. Uh, and I just think what an honour for Betty to be sitting there in that place filled with her family and her friends and many who had um, shared her same faith, where Betty had shared her faith with her family going on. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. What an amazing thing to be able to say at the end of your life. The Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. And so she died, as I said, with her faith intact and surrounded by her family. In the Old Testament, there is a story of King Hezekiah. And he was a great king. He had uh, an incredible, get this, nope. Hezekiah, this is this dude here. He, had, uh, he was a great godly man. He, he, he ruled his kingdom with uh, the ways of God. He loved God. He served God. Um, thank you. <laughs> noise. Uh, but what happened for King Hezekiah was that he got given the bad news that his life was about to end. And uh, so it's always never good when the prophet comes. I generally would rather not have a prophet come to my door because it always feels like prophets bring doom. And indeed, this prophet did bring doom. He said, you are, get your things in order. You are about to die. Get everything ready. Now, Hezekiah, being a godly man, went to his knees and he cried out to God and said, God, I have served you wholeheartedly. I've done my best for you. Please, what can we do here? And he wept bitterly. And then Isaiah, the prophet, left 
as prophets do. They come, they deliver the news of doom, and then they walk off. But thankfully, it wasn't finished there. Isaiah got a word from the Lord to go back to King Hezekiah because the Lord had heard his cry and said, Hezekiah, good news, good news. I'm going, the Lord says he will extend your life another 15 years. So he got a reprieve for another 15 years. And the story goes on that Hezekiah, although a godly man, was also a man who really loved the things that he had built up, the things that he had bestowed, the material things that has in his kingdom. And people had come to see his kingdom, and he had showed off all his glorious wealth. And it was a, quite a prideful thing. Uh, and so the, Isaiah comes back. And he says, unfortunately, uh, because uh, you're so kind of all about your kingdom and the wealth you're going to have, unfortunately what's going to happen is all of it will be carried away uh, and your generations afterwards will bear the brunt of this pride that you've had. But instead of being heartbroken about the fact that his next generations after him will have to sit and bear the brunt of his heart, he actually was like, oh, no, well, that's all right. At least I've got peace in my time. No worries. It's fine. As long as it's all good for me, sweet as. Uh, which is an incredibly sad notion to have, I think, as anybody who knows that other people are following behind us, that actually all we really care about is the here and now, and we don't think about the generations that come after us. So, unfortunately, what happens from that is Hezekiah is blessed with a son, uh, and he basically, is, this is three years into that last 15-year time period, and he has 12 years of his reign to build up his son, to pass on his knowledge, to install in him how to be a king, how to rule and reign, how to be a godly person. And fortunately, it doesn't happen. And his son goes, uh, becomes king at the age of 12, which to me sounds ridiculous. If you can think of any 12-year-olds in your life becoming a king of a kingdom. <laughs> nightmare. Uh, anyway, and it was. He was a nightmare because he hadn't had this passed down for the next generation, the godly faith of King Hezekiah. I'm just going to get back to my notes now, folks. Um, so I would think, if I was King Hezekiah, I told I had 15 years left, I had a child, I would think 12 years to go, I'm going to do biggest job I can to input into that person, that small person, instill in them my faith, um, instill in them my godly, my wisdom that I've been given by God, I would think that that's what I'd be doing. I'd be going out and getting the latest scrolls downloaded on parenting. I'd be thinking about the parenting seminars that I can do. I'd be, oh, you just, it'll be a, just a different place and a different view for your future child. And that is the sadness of the story, is that his child did not get that gifted to him. Uh, to pass on. So unlike Betty, who passed away with her faith intact and surrounded by family and friends, Hezekiah left nothing of eternal value. He might have left a kingdom of monetary and wealth, but he never carried on the thing that meant the most, which is the eternal value. And I personally, as a parent, do not want to make the same mistake as Hezekiah. Uh, I want to pass on my faith to my Small children. Oh, no, they're not all small. I can't say that now. I want to pass on my faith to my children because actually they're all taller than me, so <laughs> it's not small at all. Um, uh, I want to ensure that they have something that is of eternal value as they continue their lives. I don't want them to grow up without faith. Life is hard as it is. Imagine doing it without faith. I want them to have a compass that shows the true north. 
I want them to understand spiritual implications of this world. And while it's noble that I want to pass on my faith, um, it often results in this kind of skewed uh, picture of actually being, trying to make them like super committed Christians that shows value on who I am as a person. It kind of skews a wee bit. And in my experience in parenting thus far, that I felt more than often than enough an unspoken pressure to portray my children as picture perfect. And I don't know how you guys feel as parents or as people of influence, whether you're teachers and your youth group leaders or whatever, but I have always felt this weird and no one tells me I have to have this pressure, but I have this pressure that I have to show my kids at their very best. And so when they would have tantrums in the public arena, especially at church, it was just mortifying for me. I was horrified. One day I got told that Harper was undressing in the front row of church. I didn't even realise I was worshipping so much. And somebody tapped me and said, um, by the way, Harper's just um, taking her clothes off. And it just horrified me. Like, but there's this pressure. Oh, sorry, Harper, I didn't probably tell you I was going to say that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is this pressure that we place to make our children picture perfect. And this is not a new phenomenon by any means. This has been going on for generations. This pressure has always been there. But with the door of social media opening up, this, uh, uh, this, um, this thing that we show off our children has become even more compounding. It's just been elevated to the extreme. And so about six months ago, I was reading, uh, I was on Twitter, and I, was read, I read a tweet uh, by a Christian, um, a New Zealand-based Christian psychologist called Jeffrey Ulrich. Oh, yes, thank you, Glenn. Um, so this is it. <laughs> I've got the thing. It's really quite exciting. Um, I feel like a TED Talk. I'm probably not coming as well as a TED Talk. But anyway, anyway, he says, Christian culture places suffocating pressure on parents to demonstrate that they are raising Jesus-loving, Bible-reading, youth-group-leading children. And I was like, yes, yes, that's so true. I feel this pressure. Now, I know that's on me because I'm the one feeling it, but I feel it so much. And haven't we all seen pictures on the gram of these lovely children deep in the King James with hashtag growing kids God's way, hashtag blessed, and you suddenly feel like, oh, my kids are reading Harry Potter. <laughs> Can't really put that on. Um, and I felt this pressure, and sadly, I am ashamed to say I have participated in promoting this pressure myself. Um, and when really all it does, is, and it's veiled, I think, often we try and veil it with the fact that, oh, this is really helpful for other parents to see my children in the King James, because it encourages them, makes them, you know, just you know, reassure that their children can do the same. But actually, that's just a veil, really. It actually just brings a lot of making you feel worse about yourself. So here's my confession, folks, because you know how I love to be authentic in front of the church. Um, I'm not the best parent, not even the best Christian parent. Uh, my children are here. <laughs> They're going to be able to validate this experience of their lives growing up with me. Uh, I have been known, and Georgia will speak to this, I have been known to use tears to get my way. Georgia? Yep. <laughs> Georgia called me out on that. She said, don't bring the tears. That's not going to work. And I realised very quickly, Georgia's like a father. The tears don't work. Um, I have... Um, 
being really vulnerable here, people. I have disregarded their feelings and emotions to promote my own. Harper would probably validate that, that sometimes I have tried to put my experience above hers. Um, I have, for whatever child is sitting on the front row in church, in whatever church we've been in, uh, I have tried to encourage them gently, can you just smile instead of looking so grumpy? You know, like, you know, because it's just horrified that anyone sees the pastor's kid actually going through some teenage angst. You know, like, I don't want you to all know that. Um, and when I was a parent of small children, I did the things right. I got the children's Bible. I read it to them. I had worship music in the children's worship. You know, we had that CD. Remember the CD? Oh. What? Yeah, the flank in your eye, that's right, yeah, you got it. Uh, I had the worship, the children's worship music, and I would play it in my car, Glenn hated it, and I would play it at home, hoping that I would be building this atmosphere of praise, and that it would just, it would just morph into my children, and they would just be nice. Uh, I did that. I, I, I attended kids' church faithfully every Sunday, so, uh, well, I didn't attend kids' church, it's a lie. I attended church, so I could get my kids into kids' church every Sunday, so they could get the word of God into them. I even purchased a faith box. You know faith families, the faith boxes? Well, if you don't know them, they're a box. They're fantastic. I'm not mocking this because that is a really great initiative. But it was a metal box and my intention in my head was always that on Friday nights, the Bilby family would be having wonderful family nights. We would be doing amazing uh, um, kind of digesting down the word of God and together we'd do an activity and it would be amazing and my kids would be like oh my goodness God you're so good but more than often it was terrible more than often it ended in tears Glenn wouldn't participate somebody would be grumpy because dad wasn't participating and they'd be like blow the Lord of you you know that's usually what it ended up although every now and then we did have some good ones but most of all it was another pressure to try and do the right thing now these things are good to do. I am not knocking them. We should be getting our kids into church and kids' church. We should be sharing with them our faith. There's absolutely no doubt about it. We have to do these things. But we are every... Oh, I'm just turning my page over. But along with that came the certain amount of smugness. Does anyone know what I mean when you do something good? Like when you had a really good parenting moment and your child's like, yes, mummy, Jesus told me that too. You're like... Oh, okay, let's just take a photo of that and put that up on the gram so everyone can see. And there's a certain smugness that came along with it. As you threw up your little picture on Instagram with your little hashtag comment on how great my kid is. It's the same smugness you feel when you choose wholemeal bread over white. Right? You know what I'm saying. When you choose, when you're at the section in the um, supermarket, you know where the rubbish bags are? And somebody's choosing rubbish bag from like, you know, they're all black sacks, they're really bad ones. And you come in with your smugness, excuse me, just need to get the biodegradable one. Thank you, thank you. You know, there's a smugness, you feel, you just feel better, don't you? Or when you take your keep cup to the cafe and you finally remember it, you just feel a little bit better than the other person with their takeout. And that's kind of what can come into this and creep into this whole parenting gig. And then my children started to grow and in their beautiful innocence they would demonstrate some God-given thing that they had suddenly got. And, um, and suddenly I felt like it was all about me. It became all about me and my amazing parenting skills that they were feeling this way. But what happens with that is all those other families 
whose children are reading Harry Potter instead of your King James, all those other parents whose children are you know, spending their money. I mean, I would love to say my children, you know, they would get their pocket money. I'd love to say that they'd go and put it into the Rise and Build offering or, you know, the church offering. But the guy just went and spent it on themselves at the shops. And, you know, when I saw the other kids on the ground talking about, oh, this is... My child, he's putting his hard-earned money that he earned into the offering. And I'll be like, oh, my blight is down at the shops, shoving in their mouths. So what happens then is that you pull away as a parent of the child that's not doing those so-called things. I mean, it's great that those children were doing that. I don't knock that. But it's the showing off, right? That's what I'm more talking about. Um, and those pictures don't make on the gram. At least mine never did. And what happens is that those parents tend to start to pull away. They start to feel a bit embarrassed or ashamed that they perhaps their children aren't doing what looks like good Christian works in their children. And slowly without realising, I had become a part of this Christian parent culture to echo this ongoing pressure that we put on each other. So instead of um, perpetuating, was a big word for me, instead of perpetuating this social pressure, I want to take a look at what does God actually ask of us as people of faith to share and carry on our faith to others? What's his desire for us in terms of sharing this faith to those coming behind us? And what is our role But versus what is God's role? So, you go to the Word of God. That's always a good place to go. And we're going to flip through these super quick Oh, have I done that right? Anyway, so you'll see in these verses, let it be recorded, this is our role. When I'm old and grey, do not abandon me. Now that gives me hope because I'm still spraying in the stuff to get rid of my greys, right? So I'm getting there. Let me proclaim. So we're told to proclaim. We're told to repeat them again and again, the commands. Talk about them when we're at home, when we're on the road, when we're going to bed. Psalm 78 says we will not hide. We will tell we will teach. Uh, Psalm 78 says, we, again, we will in, they will in, ten, in, in turn teach their own children. And Deuteronomy 4 says, never forget about what we've seen. Ensure that we pass it on to our children and their grandchildren. God is always about the generations. He's never about just the here and now. He is always thinking about who else is coming after us. So, whose job is it? Whose job is it to bring our children to Christ? John 6.43 says, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Does that give me responsibility to draw my children? It gives me no responsibility. The responsibility sits solely with our Creator. So here's the problem. If I, if I understand that the drawing of my children is wholly responsible on me as the parent, there's going to be either three scenarios. Scenario one is, said child accepts Jesus just to please me. Said child accepts Jesus for me to get off their back. Or said child rejects Jesus because they don't like to be controlled and they reject him. And it only takes one really, really big difficult moment in someone's life for the faith of those said children to fall away. So, um, we know that in the sower. Um, the parable of the sower talks about that. 
that it actually, uh, the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. And so it's not uncommon, Jeffrey um, Ulrich goes on, the psychologist goes on to say that these outcomes progress in that order. Developmentally from early childhood to adulthood, the sad truth is millennials are walking away from the church. Zoomers are likely to follow. And research has backed that up. So there's a big research called the Barna Group in America that have researched over 96,000 surveys over a time period of 20 years in the American churches to see the change of culture and the change of um, habits and the way faith has changed over what it looked like in the 20th century and what it now looks like in the 21st century. In the words of Barna, many young people are still somewhat attached to the faith in which they were raised, but this appears to fade as people move further away from their parents. That to me is horrifying. As a parent, that is horrifying to me. What has happened that it hasn't become such a uh, connected thing with them that they move away once they're out of our homes? Jeffrey goes on to say that he suspects that many who do stay do so out of fear that will cost them emotionally, relationally, financially, and therefore some fall away even more gradually. So then, what is the other option? What is the other pathway option? A way that places faith in the one who created and loves your, person, your child, who would leave the 99 to go and find your child wherever they're at. And this is a powerful story of God's heart for his people, God's heart for his child, God's heart for your children. And it's a heart for the, for heart, it's a heart for the one who's lost. In the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son wasn't drawn back to the father's house because the father was nagging him, threatening to turn off the Wi-Fi, um, ordering him to return. Instead, the son returns to the home because he had a revelation and that pig's, bed, uh, what do you call it, Sting, bun, sting sty, whatever, uh, uh, he has a revelation that in fact he needs to go home, that home is his safe place. And his father um, gave him, a, an ex- his father accepted him and he loved him. He knew the love of his father. But actually, the father of that prodigal son allowed him to go trusting that God is good and God loves his child and would meet him where his son was at. And as you know the story, that uh, the prodigal son does come home and there's a massive party and it's all good. Um, But Jesus is about having an authentic relationship with each of us. He is not interested in some fake look good faith uh, that he saw. He saw that in the Pharisees and he called them out on it and he said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're all white and pristine on the outside but in the inside you're dead. And Jesus is always about the connection and having authentic faith with the person. So how do we pass on our faith to those coming behind us? First of all, I have to have a faith myself. I can't pass on what I do not have. It is up to me to be responsible, to engage, to connect with my faith. So it actually looks even a bit attractive that I want to be able to pass it on. And the one thing we know about the last few generations is they are not interested in fake and authentic experiences. 
Um, again, I'm going to use a story from Georgia and I haven't told her. <laughs> She's like, oh, it's not a worrying, it's not an embarrassing story. But it's a story that Georgia was at school in her Christian living class and she was asking questions about why. Why is that? You know, I don't understand that. Tell me more about that. And her uh, Christian living class teacher had said to her, you've just got to believe, you've just got to have faith. And that was it. And it wasn't good enough. For a teenager who's exploring her faith, who's questioning, who's wanting to know deeper answers and to know the whys, she was just told just to have faith. And she came home and she said it's not good enough. And that's where she really kind of got into the apologetics of stuff because she wanted to know more than that. She didn't want to be just shut down and, and just, oh, just have faith, you'll be fine. But actually she wanted to know far more than that. And I think instead we need to focus on authentic relationships and connections with our own children. Witnessing the faith of our coming and going. Deuteronomy is famous for that brilliant verse. Our coming and our going, our lying down, our waking up, we share the conversation. And we have to allow them to ask and explore the questions of why. And now I'll be honest, I, find, I found this really difficult to actually allow my children to start exploring the why, what do they believe? Because there was this fear in me, like, oh my goodness, if they ask questions, that maybe they'll fall away and they won't, you know, they'll discover something completely ungodly. It was it's a real fear for me. But I realised that if I do not give them the chance to explore those questions and understand for themselves, then their roots will not go deep. And the first hint of a crisis, they'll be gone. Because it means nothing to them. So, we need to release our children to God. And this is, it. this is where the faith kicks in. This is where I have to know, is my faith real? Do I believe in what I believe? Is it real? Um, and releasing your child to Jesus, this can often be the hardest part. I can't even imagine for a minute how it felt for the father of the prodigal son to divvy up the inheritance, give it to his son, knowing that he would likely go off and spend it on all the things that he spent it on that weren't really awesome for him. I imagine how scary that must have been. Now, I'm not saying we just release our children and let them go, but I'm just saying it, it, there was just such a faith in that man for, his product, for God to reach his prodigal son. And I have this other time where um, my brother, if you don't know, my brother passed away from bowel cancer. And before he died... I had this absolute panicky feeling that was on me, a pressure on me to save my brother. My brother was not a person of faith. And suddenly, as you know, when you're given a time frame of a shortened life, I suddenly felt this immense pressure to save my brother. Like it was all about me. It was all about me saving him. I completely missed that actually it's nothing about me. And I remember I was running, and I know that's quite funny because I don't run anymore, obviously, but I did used to run for a short period of time in my life. Anyway, I was running along, and I was crying, and I was praying to God, please save my brother, da, 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 da. This, is, this is an emergency, this is, you know, this is real reality stuff. This is uh, life and death stuff. And I literally got a guttural feeling in my stomach. I've never experienced it before, never experienced since. I got a guttural feeling, and I actually went over, which I've never had. It was weird. I was in Mission Bay by the fountain. I went over and I got these words in my head and the words said to me, I know you love Matthew. Do you not think I who created can love him even more? And I suddenly realised in that moment it was not on me to save him. In that moment it was all about God. 
He was the one who drew, would draw him. And I can't tell you how releasing that was for me. And from now on, having, uh, having a lot of my family who aren't Christians, how releasing that is for me not to feel this pressure of their salvation is on me, but actually it's all about God. He draws them. Thank you, mate. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, we are meant to share our faith. So I'm not saying we just walk off and pff, let it go. We are meant to continue to share, to proclaim, to not hide, to talk. We are meant to do those things. But the saving is never on us. That is all about God. And Jeffrey also reminds us that it's important to understand that sometimes this drawing may be the work of God that may happen over a much longer period of time. So when we don't see it happening right now, it doesn't mean it's not happening, but maybe it's going to happen over a long period of time. And that's okay. It won't mean that you've failed as a parent or you've failed as a youth group leader or you've failed as an auntie or an uncle. It doesn't mean God is angry with us. It just means that we were never given that job to do. It was not our job. And so to sum it up this morning, it's important that we do pass on our faith, but without succumbing to the worldly pressure that we place on each other to have pitch-perfect children. Let's not add more pressure to other parents who are doing the same job as we are. But instead, let us help our children see faith because it's authentic and that that faith can cope with questions and wonderings. And let's not be afraid to let them to explore what it is they believe. God has been questioned and queried over thousands of years. He has always lived up to it. He has got this. And let us know our role versus what God's role is and then the process of our children developing faith. And I just want to remind us, we are there to proclaim. What else are we there to do? Participation. What else? We proclaim. We teach. We talk. Over the side. <laughs> we remind. Thank you, Glenn, for picking that up. <laughs> A really awkward moment. Uh, but that's what we are called to do. Let our faith be a constant conversation with our children. It's made up of multiple little conversations, but let it be an ongoing conversation over our lifetime with them. But we must always remember it's God who draws, it's God who reveals, and it's God who saves. So we're going to move into communion now. So somebody wants to uh, bring out the communion. Like the conversation... Uh, like conversations, how we communicate our faith with our children, God communicates his uh, heart with us. He communicates in so many ridiculously creative ways. We are designed to commune with him. And communion is a way for us to engage with our creator. But if we don't have that place of relationship with God, how on earth can we pass on something we don't have ourselves? So I want to take this time as we are um, giving out the communion to think about where are we at personally as people who've always got someone coming behind you and you don't have to be a parent. You're always going to have someone else following behind you. Where are you at in your faith relationship? Because God, when he broke the bread and he drank the wine, he was, he was reclining at the table. He was with his most favorite people. He was passing on his most important eternal value to them. He was passing on himself, and he wants us to rem be reminded of that occasion, of that connection, of that communion with him. 
Luke 22, 14 to 19 says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, Take this, divide it among you, for I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we will continue this tradition that he set up. We will continue to do this in remembrance of him. We will continue to do it in light of our connection with our faith of our God of just who he is in our lives and what he has done. And I, I, what I'd like us to do is we are going to um, sing a song and I want us to take this time now to check ourselves out and think about people who are coming behind us. Thank you. And what we need to do, but we need to do it in a real and authentic way that is captivating, that is exciting, that demonstrates how incredible our faith, how incredible our God is.